Join me on March 14th as I'm joined by Condé Nast Traveller's senior editor, Megan Spirell, to share a behind-the-scenes peek into the making of our Women Who Travel Power list. But there's so much more waiting for you in the full article. From film directors to war journalists to wildlife ecologists, these women are reshaping the travel landscape and leaving a lasting impact on the world. Tune in to hear why Megan and myself are so excited about the 15 women we've chosen to highlight. Subscribe to cntraveler.com today to access the complete list and be inspired by their incredible journeys. And for a limited time, our listeners can unlock everything Traveller has to offer for just $5. Simply use code POD5, that's P-O-D-5, at checkout to access exclusive travel insights, breathtaking destinations, and invaluable tips to fuel your adventure spirit. All for just $5. And remember, every adventure starts with just one step. Join us in celebrating the power of women in travel. Visit cntraveler.com today. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. A lot of people spend a lot of money on things like skincare, fast fashion, and even surgery, all in the name of self-improvement. But as the price of perfection rises... When is it time to call it quits? I'm Rima Hreis, host of This Is Uncomfortable, a podcast from Marketplace. This season, we dig deep into the financial trappings of self-care and the real motivations behind our spending choices. Listen to This Is Uncomfortable wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, it's me, Lale Arikoglu and welcome to a new episode of Women Who Travel. Today, I'm talking to a journalist and author who is best known for her eclectic and eccentric subjects. She's Susan Orlean, who's written for Rolling Stone, Vogue and The New Yorker. And there are, you know, these fertility festivals, which were wonderful and you get bonked on the head with a giant wooden phallus. Even in the airport, there are penises drawn everywhere, penis sculptures everywhere. Well, it was hilarious because coming from a Western culture where you think, oh my God, this is insane, but literally everywhere. She's passionately curious. Do you consider yourself a travel writer? I absolutely think I'm a travel writer in a somewhat eccentric definition of the term. People often say to me, what do you write about? What's your topic? And I'm always a little bit at a loss because I write about the things that interest me. To me, every story involves travel in in the existential sense of the word travel. You are journeying into another world. I don't write about people who are very much like me. So even if I only go a mile away, I am journeying into a very different universe. Right. And I guess it's like, you know, how does one define travel in itself you know does does travel writing have to be covering 
one particular type of moving around the world and one particular type of story. I mean, there's so many different ways in which people travel and also reasons that they travel. And surely that extends to writing too. And often the travel is time travel. A lot of the stories that I've written involve uh, a fair amount of investigation into the history of the place that I'm writing about or the person or the topic. And I, I feel that that's travel. In my first book, Saturday Night, while it would, on one very simple level, be defined as travel because I traveled from place to place to about 18 different communities in the United States, I felt like I was it was conceptual travel. I had taken this idea, which was that Saturday night is a great universal connector, that we, regardless of who we are, what we are, tend to feel that Saturday night is a special night in the week. I mean, I'm sure you've heard this so many times now, but it's such a brilliant and simple conceit. How much do you like giving yourself a theme to report to and to write to? Did you find it freeing or did you find yourself, were you worried you were penning yourself in? I love having a a kind of template established when I'm reporting. I feel like part of what we are always trying to do is see some pattern and order in the world. From polka dancing at a restaurant in Maryland that was home to the first Oktoberfest in America to a quinceañera in Phoenix, each chapter's destination is a wonderfully specific portrait of a community enjoying their Saturday. Part of what I was doing was answering the specific question of what is it that we have in common as a people and how do we differently interpret something we have in common? The book came out in 1990. Looking back now, which are the ones that you have really endured for you, that you, the communities and the people that you still think about? I think often about the Park Avenue dinner party. Um, it, it felt in a way that it captured New York and especially New York at that moment in time, but also something about the nature of a very privileged elite subculture in its kind of most full flower, uh, this closed universe that operated with its own rules and its own systems. And similarly, I think about another New York chapter, which is funny, and maybe this was because I lived in New York at the time, but I had decided I wanted to write about a Saturday night at the Bowery Mission, which used to be called a soup kitchen. It's sort of a support center for the homeless population. I just thought, look, if you're a person who doesn't have a home, how do you acknowledge Saturday night as being a different kind of night of the week? Does anything change for you when you have so little? 
And it certainly was very different. But what I came across completely unexpectedly was some time earlier, a Mennonite church in Pennsylvania had decided to adopt the Bowery Mission as one of their sort of community outreach projects. They would ride a bus into Lower Manhattan and sing at the Saturday night church service at the Bowery Mission and talk about subcultures colliding. Uh, Mennonite people live a very sheltered life, very much unto themselves. They live in rural communities. They're very separate from the urban world of, and most dramatically, the urban world of the Bowery Mission, where you have a lot of men struggling with alcohol and drug problems who are living in shelters, and this is a very family-based, the Mennonite community, you know, extremely tight-knit community. Something they wanted to do as a community was to provide music service, and it was transcendent. It was also amazing to see particularly the Mennonite women who live a very cosseted life in lower Manhattan encountering men who were living on the streets more or less. I mean, there are times when I think, wow, did that really happen? That was wild. <laughs> did you, you know, you kind of said that sort of part of, you know, when you set out to report that book, that there was a sort of, as you were looking to see if there was a sort of commonality there for Saturday night. Did you find one in the Park Avenue apartment and in the Bowery Mission? Or did they truly feel like they were such different worlds away, even though it's a matter of subway stops? Um, was there still something that knitted them together for you? Yes, absolutely. The sort of animating question of the book was, regardless of their status in life, their region, their age, their, you know, we, every possible way we define ourselves, does Saturday night mean something? The answer is yes, it does. It, I believe it's a very human need to see time not as a constantly extending line that has no rhythmic quality, but instead that it's a circle that keeps repeating, that there is some rhythm to time, you know, that we need that. Susan's 1998 book, The Orchid Thief, took her on a wild journey as she accompanied a horticulturalist on his quest to find a rare orchid in a swamp forest in the Florida Everglades. She enters his world of fanatical plant smugglers out to clone orchids, but who get caught. You definitely talk to some sort of larger-than-life characters from time to time. How do you tell when someone is being genuine with you? How can you see that they're being genuine with you and they're not just spinning some fabulous story because they think it's what you'd want to hear? 
Oh, that's a, well, that's a big challenge because people often feel they need to perform for a reporter. I've been very lucky because The New Yorker allows us to have enough time. And I really like observing somebody not only interacting with me, but interacting with other people. That's where I think you often can get a sense of who someone really is. When I'm reporting a story, I'm it's like a superpower to be curious because you're willing and able to do things you couldn't do. So I knew the story mostly involved being in a swamp in South Florida. And I thought, well, I am not going in a swamp under any circumstances. I'm just not. And very quickly, I was in the swamp because it was obvious <laughs> that that was the only way to do the story. And every now and again, when I would be in waist-deep water and there were alligators and snakes, and and I would kind of look at myself as if I were in another body looking at this person in the swamp going, if my mom could see me, she would die. You know, that's always been my yeah. measure. Is like, if my oh. mother could see me doing this, she would absolutely <laughs> die. So a few years after The Orchid Thief came out, and I ended up going into the swamp many times because I had to, and it, it's terrifying. Describe the swamp just a little bit more, kind of like, what did it... Because oh, I hear swamp, and I have well, a picture of what I think it is, but I might be wrong. This is a South Florida swamp, which is a marshy, wet area, and in some cases it's only up to your ankles in water, in other cases it's up to your chest. It's very dense shrubbery and trees. Um, the water is not moving. It's still. And it's the home to an enormous array of wildlife, much of which you would not wish to encounter, um, like alligators and a lot of poisonous snakes, uh, wild hogs, um, you know, everything under the sun, spiders, every, you know, it's... it. it I mean, and they are kind of the cradle of life. There's an incredibly rich diversity of nature, but they're, you know, they're wet and muddy and gooey and... Um, and you can appreciate their value to the universe and also be like, I do not want to encounter an alligator in this swamp. Oh, you would have had a hard time getting me to go back in as a as a visitor but while as a reporter it was i i felt like well of course i have to go in there's no other I option have to. there's no other option susan never does get to see a ghost orchid in bloom in the final journey through a swamp a guide gets lost coming up susan on more of her intrepid and quirky encounters with animals as the central characters Hi, I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor of The New Yorker. 
Each week on the Writer's Voice podcast, New Yorker fiction writers read their newly published stories from the magazine. You can hear from authors like Colson Whitehead. Turner nudged Elwood, who had a look of horror on his face. They saw it. Griff wasn't going down. He was going to go for it, no matter what happened after. Or Joy Williams. Her father was silent. Slowly, he passed his hand over his hair. This usually meant that he was traveling to a place immune to her presence, a place that indeed contradicted her presence. She might as well go to lunch. Listen to new stories or dive into our archive of great fiction. You can find the work of your favorite fiction writers and discover new ones. Listen and follow The Writer's Voice wherever you get your podcasts. Wouldn't it be great to earn rewards on everything you crave, from gourmet to homemade? Now you can with the U.S. Bank Altitude Go Visa Signature Card. Earn four times points on dining, takeout, and restaurant delivery, and two times points at grocery stores, grocery delivery, gas stations, EV charging stations, and streaming services. Learn how you can earn 20,000 bonus points, a $200 value, at usbank.com slash Altitude Go when you apply. Live every day your way with the Altitude Go card. Learn more at usbank.com slash Altitude Go. Limited time offer. The creditor and issuer of this card is U.S. Bank National Association, pursuant to a license from Visa USA, Inc. Some restrictions may apply. In one of her stories, an orca whale named Keiko, the star of the movie Free Willy, becomes ill and has to be transported from Mexico to Oregon to Iceland. Susan describes the trip in her book on animals. I just love animals. I love what they look like. I love their behavior. It's interesting to write about them because you are never writing about them alone. You're always writing about them in the context of the people who are engaged with them, even wild animals. You know, writing about Keiko, while it was very much about this whale, it was overwhelmingly about all of the people and the money that had been spent over the decades to try to repatriate him from an aquarium back into the ocean. And, you know, there was this um, kind of tragic story of the effort to release him and, and the questions of captivity versus wildness. I mean, it's really about people um, mm -hmm. at the end of the day, but animals provide such a perfect kind of contrast because they aren't affected by all of the things that we're affected by, um, but they are subjected to the human kind of influence in their worlds. I love the fact that we've established this kind of working relationship with this other species, like they could be Martians and we, you know, we are so interested in meeting Martians, but we have Martians right here on Earth. They're in all these different interesting shapes of baboons and cows. And, you know, we, what could be more alien? And yet we manage somehow to make some connection with them. And I think that's incredible. 
I feel like we've been talking about some really spectacular places, you know, Keiko and Iceland and the swamps of Florida. Is there is there a place that has really stayed with you from your reporting, whether it be, um, you know, obviously one of your most famous pieces is about the um, surfers in Hawaii, which got immortalized into, a, into the film Blue Crush. Is there any anywhere that kind of you left a little piece of your heart in? Uh, Bhutan, certainly. Oh, tell me about Bhutan. Uh, well, I went on, um, first of all, it's just the most beautiful place I've ever been. It truly is. And it's also a place that at that time was almost without tourism and almost without the influence of the outside world. So it had a very, very precious quality of being this sort of preserved in amber place. And that has changed somewhat. I mean, at the time that I went, there was no television. There were very few movies. There was very little influence of Western culture and consumerism, and that was kind of amazing. But the raw physical beauty is, you know, just breathtaking. It, it, but I also had this amazing trip because um, I had seen an ad that caught my attention, which was uh, basically saying, if you would like to get pregnant, come on this trip to Bhutan because they have all of these fertility festivals and it's going to help you get pregnant. And I thought, I have never heard of a trip <laughs> organized around the idea of getting pregnant and enhancing your fertility by going to these Buddhist uh, fertility festivals. What I didn't know was that the penis is a revered symbol in Bhutan, and there are penises drawn everywhere, penis sculptures everywhere. Even in the airport, there are penises painted on the wall, and it's not lewd in any way. It's like this is the sort of fountain of fertility, and we worship it, and well, it was hilarious because coming from a Western culture where you think, oh, my God, this is insane. But literally everywhere. And and there are, you know, these fertility festivals, which were wonderful. And you get bonked on the head with a giant wooden phallus. And um, so there was <laughs> it's a, that a like certain... wonderful thread of like complete sort of exposure to something new and the like humor that can come with travel even if it, yes. even in a way that's not being judgmental there's just there's just sometimes you can see that the absurdity or the humor in something that to a completely other part of the world feels and is totally normal yeah exactly i mean in a way we're laughing at ourselves because you know, we were all Westerners and feeling like, oh, my God, this is so, you know, it, it brought out the fifth grader in you giggling at these penises. <laughs> and and yet it's absolutely logical and, you know, maybe a bit one sided in terms of gender. But still, there's this great worship of fertility in general. And so this was my favorite kind of trip, which is that it was a thematic, 
instead of just going to Bhutan, which any uh, I promise you is worth going in the most unthematic way, just go and see it. It's it, absolutely gorgeous, and the people are lovely. The traditions are amazing, but it also had this through line of the quest for fertility, which was fascinating. And the people on the trip were all trying to get pregnant and were really looking forward to these fertility festivals and blessings in hopes that that was going to influence their ability to get pregnant. So it was just an incredible trip. And I've thought about it. I actually went back to Bhutan one other time after just on my own because I became close friends with someone there. And it, it was just a magical, magical place. And especially at that moment in time. I mean, it, it's become a little bit more open to the world, a little more um, kind of buffed up for, for tourism, but um, it was just an amazing experience. After the break, how time zones make communication so hard between people who desperately want to connect. Hi, I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor of The New Yorker and host of The New Yorker Fiction Podcast. On the podcast, I ask a great contemporary writer to select a favorite story from the magazine's almost 100-year archive to read and discuss. Together, we delve into the story, exploring its themes, its style, and what makes fiction work. You can listen to authors like Otessa Moshfeg talk about why we write. Story, or attaching a story or creating a story, is this inclination that we all have to stop spinning. And you can hear writers like George Saunders discuss the nature of storytelling. On the first read, you accept these things as descriptions, and they make you see the scene. But every line is a chance to inflect the reader's mind. You'll discover new favorite authors and read old favorites in new ways. Episodes of the New Yorker Fiction Podcast are released on the first of every month. Listen and follow wherever you get your podcasts. When I spoke to Susan Orlean, I was in London en route to Greece and Turkey. She was at home in the Hollywood Hills. And no matter how much I travel, it's still oddly disorientating to be talking to someone who's framed by an afternoon sky when, where I am, it's pitch black outside. How do you handle time zones and time differences? Oh, I, I hate them. In fact, every now and again, I thought, why don't we just have everybody in the same time zone? And, you know, for you, seven o'clock might be the very middle of the day. For me, it's the morning. It, but I'm, <laughs> I find them very disconcerting. And it's very funny when someone I'm close to is in a different time zone. I feel disconnected, more disconnected from them because I think there's this feeling that if someone's far away but you're you know that you're having lunch and they're probably having lunch as well i live in new york 
all my family is in the UK and then I have some family in Turkey. And I have the different time zones on my phone. And then I also have all the different weather forecasts that I can flip I through. Just, I do too. <laughs> I do too. And I think that this is our way of trying to span these distances. And, you know, it was funny for a very long time. I lived on the West Coast and my parents, I grew up in Ohio, which is on the Eastern time zone. So I was three hours different from my parents and it felt like I was really, really far away. Then I moved to New York and we were suddenly in the same time zone. And even though I saw them just about as often, which was not all that often, I felt so much closer. And really, I was I was physically closer, but I was still far away. But the fact that I knew where they were in their day made me feel that we weren't so far apart. I was about to go off on assignment to Mykonos in Istanbul. Reporting trips are a different beast from personal travel, and sometimes more heightened. So how does Susan find time to travel for herself? You know, we've kind of focused so much on your travel as a reporter, but I'm interested to know, you know, are there any destinations you never tire of visiting or I, I guess somewhere that you have your sights set on? I do. I have a wish list that I keep. <laughs> I, I really do keep a literal wish list. I want to go to Mongolia, um, particularly on a pony trek in Mongolia. I spent one day in India because I got stuck there on a flight that was going from Bangkok to Bhutan. So I like to say to people, I've been to India, I spent a day in India, and I realize now it wasn't enough, um, which of course is ludicrous, but I would love to spend some time there for sure. And I'd love to go to Patagonia. I went to Patagonia last year, and it was just, I think, one of the most spectacular places I've ever been I've never felt I've got some like pretty far away places I've never felt quite so far away from home as when I was in Patagonia so I highly recommend you go you have to do it yeah well I read um in Patagonia by one of my very favorite writers Bruce Chatwin who is a travel writer in the most in in a traditional sense but in his own way just a very unconventional travel writer. And he his book in Patagonia made me feel like I simply have to go. This has been such a delight. I had a thousand other questions that I didn't have time to get to. I know it's such a it's such a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you. Next week, I tap Vogue's Chloe Mal, host of the run through, for her ultimate packing tips. It's sheer joy. See you then. I'm Lale Arakoglu, and you can find me on Instagram at Lale Hanna. Our engineers are Jake Loomis and Gabe Kuroga. This week's show was mixed by Catherine Anderson. Jude Kampfner from Corporation for Independent Media is our producer. See you next week. And if 
are watching this video, either I'm dead or I'm in a very, very, very bad situation. She said, oh my God, I can hear gunshots. I can hear men outside. Where are they? What have they done to them? Are they dead? Are they not dead? There is one suspect, her father, the Sheikh. It's Madeline Barron from In the Dark. We've teamed up with our new colleague, Heidi Blake, at The New Yorker to try to answer a question about one of the richest men in the world, the ruler of Dubai. Why do the women in Sheikh Mohammed's family keep trying to run away? There is five policemen outside and two policewomen inside the house. So basically I'm a hostage. And he reminded me that Sheikh Mohammed can get me anywhere. Because you're a rich and powerful person, you can effectively break any law you want in our country and get away with it. The Runaway Princesses is available now. Follow In the Dark wherever you get your podcasts.